She loves New York City. She loves New York. Okay. But What's not to love for a young person? For a young person, not much. As you get older, like what I realize is like there are all these buildings that are actually liabilities for the owners, you know? So, I mean, it's just, uh, do I need to put these on? Yes. Are we? Wait, what do you mean by that? The, <laughs> the liabilities that? for the owners. So Underwater? Um, well, you know, the owners of the buildings make money and New York City charges um, real estate taxes on them. But if you own an apartment in a condo or in a, in a co-op, you are spending money every month on your share of real estate taxes and your share of the common expenses. And the common expenses are not actually the common expenses. There's a contract there that is profitable for somebody. And of course, if you don't pay, then you're out. So it's just this, yeah, I feel like I see New Yorkers and they're just kind of like on a treadmill. Yes. They're trying to keep up. To keep up you know? with the, that expense. Yeah, and yeah. it's a lot. Were you talking about like the HOA fees or the common fee? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and you just, re- I mean, it's, it's just, you're just running to keep ahead. Yes. And then if you say, no, I just, I'm going to just own the real estate outright. So now you can try and buy a townhouse. But now your share of the real estate taxes, taxes. is huge. Yeah. So you have a massive real estate. So one way or another, you know, you are paying money just all the time. And it reminds me of other assets that look like liabilities. So I realized at some point, you know, you're turning the pages. It happens every now in the FT. You turn the pages, you see some massive yacht that's for sale, and it's in a big advertisement. And then you ask, why would the owners actually spend all that money to take a half-page ad because it's the, costing them triple. Yeah, yeah, and like literally the minute you own it, the day you own it, if yeah. you're not spending vast amounts of money on it, it's going to be worthless very quickly. That yeah. is a horrible asset to own. You know? Unless the experience of owning it and using it is so great that it's unreplaceable with anything else, I right. agree. Yeah, and for but, some people, boating is that, not for me. I mean, yeah, and as long as it doesn't bankrupt you within three years. And I think that some people, they'll buy a yacht Maybe not like a $300 million yacht, but even a million or $2 million yacht. And then they just don't realize that it's $250,000 a year just to keep it afloat. Yeah. And uh, and that's, you know, the, the experience is worth it, but not if it bankrupts you. Right. You well, know? Barry, where did you come from? Speaking as a boater. I in just to say hi. Tell us about your $300 million yacht. So, so I'm fond of saying the cheapest part. Get the of, microphone in front of him. The, the cheapest part of boating is the boat. But you got the least expensive part right, of boat, right? right? It's That's everything else around the bo- it. The, the booze is the expensive the, part. The booze, the marina, the... I have a 24-foot dinghy, by the way. Yeah, not what about... What about foot. The but winches. the boat is the least expensive part. The winches? Like, one of those winches is like an insane amount of money. Oh, boat elevator. And, uh, I, yeah. So especially, the funny thing is when you first start boating, yeah. you learn all this <laughs> Mike's stuff. Gonna, Mike's going to bounce. Barry, sit. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to come and say hi because yeah. you guys have blown in and have, out. Do you know each other? No. We have not do you met. know of each other? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you, and vice versa. So. All right. <laughs> stay stay, stay overnight. You'll do Barry's podcast tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> get the back and get the... We'll, we'll, just keep, we'll just keep rolling. You get the Ritholtz bed and breakfast deal. Speaking of bed and breakfast, uh, next Wednesday, and we'll go do our Sorry, thing. This we'll is like up. on the air, literally. You wanna... not, he told me not yet. Oh. Oh, okay. What, wait, what's next Wednesday? Scott, we have dinner. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. That's okay. See he, you later. His assistant knows. It's fine. <laughs> you know? Barry Ritholtz, ladies and gentlemen. Have a good show. Thank you. The eponymous... Right? Eponymous is when you name the firm. No, he's somebody. Dude, but he's alive. I play this guy off. He's alive. I need, uh, I need music. music. <laughs> Barry Riddles. All right. Uh, I'm so glad we finally got to meet. I'm so glad you're here in person. Uh, we have so much to do today. I'm almost worried we're not going to get to it all. You saw the doc, right? 
you know, it's in I, there. It's extensive. <laughs> it's extensive, but in a good way. In a good way. No wait, there's a high correlation. What, what's going? Oh, you what are you playing? What is this? Was that an accident? No. Get your shit together. There's a high correlation between <laughs> guests that are in the dock, which you are, thank you, yeah. and the quality of the show. So, so I'm closing yeah. out tabs good for exactly okay. that reason. Anyone yeah. you want to call out, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> no, in a good way, in a good way. If Everything's in, dock, in a good way. Everything's in a good way. <clears throat> All right, shall we get going? Let's do it, John. All right. We hey, sound good. Hey, John, what episode is it? to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by our friends at Public. Before we start today's show, we're going to talk about the hottest asset class of 2023, cash. Oh, uh, yeah. U.S. Treasury yields are currently hitting some of the highest levels in over two decades. However, if you're trying to buy treasuries at, like, the government side, it's not that great. Public.com has made it stupid easy. Click of a button, boom, six-month T-bills right there in your account. I'm buying six-month T-bills like other people buy candy. Okay. I think it's great that they made it so easy. No, you know, the public is, is onto this. So 33 straight weeks of inflows into bonds. People know what's up. You get some some yield in your cash first time in a long time, so it's good. It's a good deal. To learn more, go to public.com slash compound. Again, that's public.com slash compound. Again, that's public.com slash compound in the way that only I can say it. We have a very special guest here today. Uh, if you're tuning in, this is your new favorite financial podcast. If this is your first time listening, and for many of you it is, The Compound and Friends is your new go-to. And uh, boy, have you chosen a special day to join us and play something. Everybody doesn't need to have a voice. When I was dead broke and I was trying to figure it out, I wasn't worried about what was going on on social media. I had mm-hmm. my blinds closed and I was locked in and I was staying up to five o'clock in the morning and I didn't ask for help. I never asked anybody for help. I never complained about anything. Like I got off my ass and I got to it. Nowadays, it's like if you got enough time to criticize people and go on social media and you broke. I just don't understand that and I never will understand that like for me personally like if the number one job is to take care of your family you Mm -hmm. wake up every day you figure out how I'm gonna get money so I can take care of my family after you take care of your family then you can take care of your friends and you can take care of your community but you gotta start with your family so especially if you're a man like how you wake up every day and the first thing you're doing is going on Twitter going on Instagram and leaving comments on somebody's page that you never want to leave you gotta figure it out you don't figure it out yet you gotta figure it out you know who that is? Warren Buffett. No, do you know who really nah, know that is? Rashad. Do you understand? Am I right? Yeah. Do you understand what Rashad has going on this weekend? That's a big deal. Talk <sighs> about it. Uh, I just want to give a quick shout out before we get to the show. Rashad Bilal created this thing called Earn Your Leisure. They have their annual event in Atlanta. It's Holy called- shit. I'm sorry to cut you off, Josh. That's a lot of notes. Oh, we're going to get into it. There we go. No, right. no, that's just, I want to find the show notes. That's Amazing. Just, that's what I carry around with. All right. So Rashad started this thing called Earn Your Leisure and their annual event's called Invest Fest. And it's this coming weekend. And our friend Ian Dunlop, who's been on this show, will be there. I was looking at the lineup today. Rashad has Diddy, Robert Smith, Steve Harvey, Jeezy, Rich Paul, 
Novogratz is going. Ja Rule, Jermaine Dupree. This is the most incredible lineup of people who have succeeded in entertainment, in business, in media. So shout to uh, Ian, shout to Rashad. This is incredible to watch these guys build this thing. Like in the last two years, yeah. I've basically watched them build this thing. Yeah. So just wanted to, I, I wanted to mention that. Okay, uh, Duncan is here. John is here. Nicole is here. Rob is here. Graham is here. Michael Batnick is here. Barry Ritholtz just left, thank God. Uh, so we get a word in edgewise. And I want to introduce our very special guest today. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Guy Spear is the managing partner of the Aquamarine Fund, which is an investment partnership inspired by the original 1950s Buffett-style partnerships. <laughs> Guy famously bid $650,100 for a charity lunch with Warren Buffett. We're going to talk about that. Uh, you note that it was with another gentleman, Monish Pabrai, correct? Okay, You'll, you're going to tell us the story momentarily. Um, the most recent bidder has paid $19 million on that lunch. So arguably, you guys got a 30 times return it's a value on your investor. investment. Pretty good. Pretty good. Didn't feel like it at the time. But. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. And, and lunch was Chipotle? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. You had the burrito. Uh, all right. We're gonna, we're gonna get into that. But I want to start with your book. Um, yeah. I read your book. I think around when it came out. I'm not a value investor. Yeah. I don't know what I am. I'm a hybrid. Yeah. But the way that you write and the way that you explain things, I think, is so f uh, forthright. And you don't flinch away from like saying what you think is the truth. And you're very direct in your approach and why you do things the way you do them. And I really respect that. So I wanted to talk about the education of a value investor. Tell us about the book and the impact that it's had and all of the doors that it's opened for you. Yeah, well, um, New York City, even though I don't live here anymore, and it's a pleasure to be on your show, and thank oh, you for welcoming me, you. and I'm still figuring out what's going on here, and there are people around, and it, it's, it's great, go and it's exciting. By the time you I'm figure it out, Brillo over here. <laughs> yes, but, um, by the time you figure it out, it'll be too late, so, so, so go, I, go with it. I flew in here, I used to live in New York, and the book is so bound up with New York City, and we're kind of like right at the center of New York City. So um, where do I start? I mean, first of all, if you think that I actually write like that, I had uh, I wrote the book, and then uh, a wonderful friend who's written a book himself edited it and rewrote major bits of it. So, but, I have an editor too. Believe <laughs> exactly. me, I know, I know. But I, okay. I, I think that um, I was just you know that that kind of forthrightness doesn't come honest, doesn't come easily. It came because I was absolutely hell scared of. Um, uh, delivering value. I wanted to deliver value to the reader, and I felt like I didn't have a PhD, and I didn't have all this academic knowledge, and what could I write about that I really knew? And I didn't want to write a book that was just going to tell people what a PE ratio is, or here's how you analyze cash flows, or here, you know, I was not going to give them any new take on financial analysis, so I kind of like turned myself inwards. But I just want you to know that that didn't come easily to me. And then there was another side to it which, where I kind of wanted to do a confessional because I'd made this early huge career mistake. And somehow I developed the courage to kind of tell the reader that. And Wait, what was the mistake? You shorted Amazon? Before <laughs> oh, I get, didn't before buy Amazon. That, you know, I think, I many think, I didn't buy, but... I want to he hear that story because I think one of the reasons why your writing resonated so much with me um, is because I had a similar a similar experience where 
I had made a huge career mistake. I made it for 10 years consecutively. So that's a whole different story. That that makes me feel a lot better yeah, because no. mine was 18 months. I didn't months, make one. You know? I made like a, almost like a lifestyle choice right. poorly. Uh, I was a retail stockbroker. Right. So I delivered zero value to anyone. Um, You're not, I'm not sure that's the case. Well, but. then. It's a long time ago. But my book was confessional. I wrote, I wrote literally Backstage Wall Street. And it's 300 pages of all the shit I used to do that nobody should do. Yeah. Not like breaking the law, but just like, this is what it's like when a great salesman meets a, an investor who's, yeah. you know, willing to, you know, take shots He's on things. just come home from work. So it, I think that's why what you what you wrote resonated with me. But let's talk about this this mistake uh, that led to the confessional tone of, of the book. Yeah. I mean, I graduated from business school. I graduated from Harvard Business School. Same. I could have gone, where? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, could have, I could have gone anywhere. <laughs> And uh, this what guy- year, What year is this? This is 1993. Okay. And uh, another graduate of Harvard Business School from 25 or 30 years prior has offered me uh, the opportunity to do deals and to have the title of vice president. And that just uh, out of scorecard, I felt like that was great and I was going to do that. And why should I stand beside a photocopier at Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan right. when I can do that? And that was just a very bad idea because I didn't really look closely at what they were up to. And even in those days of no internet and going into a microfiche and looking at newspaper reports, you could have seen. And I didn't understand how important the reputation of the place you're working at and your own reputation is in the world of finance. So I kind yeah. of, within six months, totally trashed the, the reputation that I'd built up all the way up to then. Right. And it would have taken me, I, I feel like it should have taken me about two weeks, really, to realize that this wasn't the place for me to be. And I just didn't want to quit. I didn't want to admit that I'd made a mistake. Right. And so, so I, a different version of you in a different universe exists where you took the Goldman Sachs job yeah. And it was probably menial for two or three years and probably beneath your intellect. But you start life with that pedigree. Yeah. And and the, the bottom line is if you stand around the photocopier at Goldman Sachs uh, or other well-known institutions, you're learning stuff because the people who get stuff printed at the photocopier at Goldman Sachs are a different breed of people to the people where I was working. Yeah. And that's not to say that Goldman Sachs is perfect. And I have this discussion with my father the whole time. For those anybody out there who feels like they've made a similar mistake, my father thinks that's the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, I got a solid punch in the face, and I deserved a punch in the face because I was a bit of an arrogant asshole. And he would say that I learned patterns of behavior uh, at D.H. Blair where I worked, which... Uh, then prepared me for many, many other places. Because as you so well put, and it's funny, because I'm looking at you right now, I know that we've both been in a room where the investment bankers come in and they pitch the deal. 100%. And our job is to go out and sell it. You yeah, know? <laughs> 100%. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of people in my life have pointed out to me, you would not have become whatever it is I've become. But you would, absent those experiences. Husky. Which were very, yeah, very husky boy. Absent those experiences, which were in the time, like like very negative experiences, the lessons learned can't really be taught. They no. have to be experienced. What yeah. were they doing when you were at JT Marlin that was so bad? I mean, they- Investment so, banking deals. So I was, I was on the, on the um, second floor. And when I, you know, I can claim to have brought one deal in, but- you know, so they, they're about to be gotten the money that they need to continue to develop their business. And uh, days before, they, they kind of, we can see, or the, the, the CEO can see that they've cut off all the other options. 
And then suddenly he comes in with a valuation that's 30% lower. And additionally says, well, actually, you know, the, the options package for us is not rich enough. And so there's enormous dilution from the options. And then when the deals got sold, I mean, they were selling these deals in units, uh, which would break with up into two warrants. warrants. And, yeah. and, and the initial bid-ask spread on those units was, you know, it was a four to five bid-ask spread, which is a 20% bid-ask spread. And you don't, the, the retail investor who's buying this stuff doesn't really understand that that huge spread is kind of a huge profit margin, really kind of egregious and shouldn't really happen. Yeah. The brokers were the, some of the most incredible salesperson people I've ever met. I was on the second floor with the invest, investment banking team. It was, it was groups of people competing with each other. But there were times when you would they, the brokers would call up a client or a potential client, and the client would say, well, I have you know, a 10% allocation to equities. And you know, a bunch of brokers would come into the room and laugh and make sure that the, the, the sort of the mark effectively on the other side of the phone heard this, that so they've kind of felt bad. I mean, they had so many different techniques for yeah. getting to do people to do things that were not really in their interest. Yeah. All right. So listen, a lot of people have had that experience early. They didn't know better. You go work at a firm. The person who interviews you is wearing a suit. You're in a you're in a skyscraper somewhere in Manhattan. Yeah. You don't assume the worst. Yeah. You assume like, oh wow, these people look successful. Yeah. And then you're there, and then you're like, oh, shit, I don't know what this is. Yeah. I don't know what these people are selling. Okay, so that's happened with a, that's happened to a lot of people. So when that, was the that moment— That makes me feel better, by the way, because I don't make, meet many people who've okay. had a similar experience. Let me make you feel much better. You know who was, <laughs> you know who was, fin you know who was financing all this stuff was Michael Milken, and he's now sitting at a conference every year in Beverly Hills interviewing right. the Sultan of Brunei. So don't, don't worry so much. You yeah. came from where you came from. But let's talk about— um, what made you want to write the book then and how you transitioned into a career that you want to have? I mean, the, the transition happens at this firm and I'm walking into a bookstore on a regular basis when I'm not playing chess in my lunch hour. And, um, nerd alert. But nerd alert, yeah. Something like, I'm not very good at chess, by the way. It's, it's terrible. How much time I've spent and how badly I play. But I came across, I mean, this is a well-known story. I came across the intelligent investor. And I don't know if this has ever happened to any of the assembled company in the room, there are quite a few people here, where I kind of like woke up one day and just realized that I wanted to be where this guy Warren Buffett was, who'd written the introduction to the book. And I didn't like where I was, and I liked where he was, but how the hell do I get from here to there? I've had that experience two or three times. I mean, uh, when, I, when I wanted to uh, apply to university, I knew where I wanted to be, and I just was desperate to get there. I kind of lost sleep over it. So. Yeah. Um, that was kind of like a lifeline for me because well, all I knew was I knew where I wanted to be and I knew where I didn't want to be. But other than that, I had no idea of how to get there. Okay. And so Buffett is like the first thing you come across in your career that speaks to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine that's happened to a lot of people. I feel like the, yeah, the yeah. Mr. Market chapter in the intelligent investor was my light bulb moment. Yeah. And, and so many millions of investors, light bulb moments, like, oh my God, it's not just numbers. There's like, you know, that's me. I do dumb shit all the time. Right. How come Mis so Mr. Market frustrating the maximum amount of market participants as possible? Right. Well, right. How come so many people, so many investors read Buffett and so few investors actually invest like him? Isn't it fascinating? That is the question. And, you know, like pretty much every other year, Warren answers a question, something like this. He says, some people get it in the first five minutes and some people don't. And that is really a fascinating thing. I just don't get it. I really don't get it because it, it was like a light bulb for me. And I was a guy who had kind of overdosed on, at the time, 
the theories in college of rational expectations, uh, uh, markets are efficient. You, if there's a dollar biller on the floor, it's not a dollar bill because if it was a dollar bill, somebody would have picked it up. So I never really thought of looking at companies. I thought of looking at them in terms of quantitative finance, analyzing the prices and correlations and all of those kinds of things. The ratios. But, but the idea yeah. that it represented part ownership in a business, just the light only switched on. Just think of that. I had four years of undergraduate. Uh, I'd studied two years of law, two years of economics. I'd done two years of an MBA. And that simple idea wasn't in my head. And I needed to read The Intelligent Investor. The Intelligent Investor was not on one reading list of any of the courses that I did. Well, now I, bet it, I bet it is now. Now it's number one ever. I think there's two reasons why people, people can't do it. Number one, most people don't know how to analyze a business properly, myself included, like really and truly analyze a business. But number two, the market is a stimulant. Right, it is not. It is not. Uh, we all often act in our worst interest because we're seeing the score, or the price every single day, and we get antsy, we get impatient, and we get yeah. fearful and greedy. And not me anymore. And uh, I, it's kind of shocking, actually, because I will not check prices for weeks and sometimes even months at a time. Now, it's true that there's somebody in an office uh, the other side of the corridor from me who's looking at prices all the time. They'll tell you if you up. need to look. Yeah, but, but the idea of me looking and life is so much better. What's hilarious is after the financial crisis 2008-9, I, uh, for, so for a period I switched off my Bloomberg. Then I, I discontinued my subscription. And then I finally made peace with having a subscription and having it off most of the time. So okay. it's kind of like a lifeline if I want it, yeah. if I want to sort of like go and grab it and look at it. And I would say that more than 50% of the time, the Bloomberg subscription that I have is switched off. I mean, I was, that's also an interesting thing that you don't look at your the, the prices of your businesses that the market is quoting every day, which is probably healthy mentally. But the idea of not looking at it for an extended period of time, what if the market is signaling something that, that you're just wrong? Like, isn't yeah. the market, isn't the market, now the market- Are there valid signals in price? Yeah, a lot of it is noise, but a lot of it isn't. So so I, I don't think you can generalize across, you you need to go into specific situations and, and, and I restrict myself to places where it's very unlikely that there'll be a signal Types in the price. Types of companies where the market signal won't be that important. Yeah, and, so but like, then still- Give us an, I mean- Coca-Cola, I'm just throwing out a random name. It doesn't really matter what the stock price is. Coca-Cola is a durable brand. It's, it's, exactly. It's, it's, so you don't, yeah. you know. So there are, there are you know, uh, whether that's uh, Nestle or if it's um, uh, a company that owns real estate or there are, there are a thousand different places where that really is the case. And Or in some cases, it's sort of asking yourself, I mean, like, take any oil company that's extracting oil out of the ground. They're doing that. Or I've been forcing myself to look at coal companies, believe it or not. And if, if you do the discounts, so long as you know that they're going to be taking coal out of the ground for the next 15 years, let's say, then you can kind of predict the cash flows and it's enough for you. So um, so then, you know, if the minute it's biotech or actually NVIDIA, which you brought up, technology, then I'm kind of like, uh, I don't know, there may be a signal in the price. Well, one of your analysts say, hey, guy, we love this company. Uh, and the price is offering us a gift, and we got we got to take a well, swing. As as we're recording yeah. this, did, so, uh, I'm sorry. Like as we're recording this, like, like as an example, uh, Disney's at a ten year low today, but there is there is the possibility that the share price actually impacts what they'll be able to do from a deal making perspective, and yeah. that is the fundamentals. Yeah, it's a deal making company. Yeah. So 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 yeah, it's hard to be in those. So it's funny because you're saying, what if the analyst says? I don't have any analysts. Actually, I do have a kind of an analyst now, but but I got myself into such trouble because, and, and the analyst, uh, the one that I had for the most period of time, really wonderful guy, hardworking, smart, 
thoughtful, but uh, this feeling of, you know, uh, hey, guy, I recommended this stock to you yesterday, and now it's up 5%, and I think it's gapping up another 5%, another 5%, and now it's like, <laughs> now I'm pulled in, basically. Yeah. And, and part of that is just to say, look, there are going to be many situations where the price does give a signal, and because I'm not paying attention to prices on a daily basis, I'm just not going to see them, but that's okay. You know, um, I'll develop other sources. And what I found is that the important stuff finds its way to me one way or another. So I, I do communicate in various ways what I'm interested in, whether it's through an email or, you know, sometimes I tweet or I put it up on my LinkedIn. And then people communicate stuff to me pretty, pretty rapidly when there's been a development. But often I think the developments, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's developments where it impacts the price and everybody's scared. And if I were to pay too much attention to it, I would myself get scared, you sure. know? And, and it's kind of like just saying, I'm not going to do that. But don't you have, to balance, you have to balance that with also you're running your portfolio. Maybe there are times where you want to trim or add. Yeah, I try not to do that either. So like, you, so, so pretty much, I mean, you know, anybody listening to this, feel free to copy it if you like it, is, you know, buy up to 5% of the current assets. So I buy 5%. Now, if I buy a company for 5%, so I allocate 5% of my assets to it, and let's say it goes to zero. I've lost 5%. That's no fun. But it's not the end of the world. It's okay. But a 5% position, if it goes up three or four times, can become really significant. So I'm trying really just to make one decision to buy over a certain period of time. In other words, if these were private companies, you would have no opportunity to sell them. Right. So I, I, Maybe and then once I just, every 10 years you could sell a private company. And I just leave it alone. And I have had plenty of examples where if I would have traded, or in some cases I did trade, I just left enormous amounts of money on the table. And even these situations where it's like, my gosh, the, the company is now uh, half of what it was trading for. I wish I'd sold at the top. But I never would have bought back at the yeah. half. Yeah. And then it goes on to double and triple from Nvidia. the previous high. NVIDIA just did that. <laughs> right. Although, I, I mean, well, I'm not funny, near but, NVIDIA. It, but, it, uh, but NVIDIA is an example, though. This is a stock that almost 70% went, went, went from 350 right. to 100. Yeah. And then, I don't know, where is it today? 500. Nine billion. So, uh, so you so you end up meeting all right. So a lot of people get turned on to investing by Buffett. Yeah. And a lot of people become a disciple or claim to be. Yeah. But you actually get to meet him. So yeah. I want to hear this story. I was sick because I was so I scared. You're say you were six. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was so scared that he would like learn about me and like this this yo yo. I I'll, I'll have. Oh, lunch you were with sick him. sick with nerves. Yeah. Okay. I I I was actually I had some kind of cold because I was so nervous in the time leading up to it. I so wanted him to like me and I was so afraid that he might meet me and just not give me the time oh, of day afterwards. I get it. By the way, that's price impacting well, fundamentals. Wait a minute. Wait what a minute. happened to your body? So he, so, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So very much so. So he announces a charitable thing yeah. where bid to have lunch with me is yeah. going to give the money away. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. How do you hear about it? And then what makes you say, I have to win this? So I, you know, I'm, I'm part of the, um, you know, the tribe that follows Warren Buffett. I'm a member of the cult. So of course I know everything Buffett. So I'm aware of this. I'm even aware before uh, Monish and I bid, I'm aware of who's had lunch with him. So you know what he's doing right now? <laughs> yeah, so when is this? The lunch, oh, is this O2? This is, uh, so we actually had lunch with him 2008, and I think oh, we won okay. the bid 2007. We started bidding 2006. Okay. Uh, Monish and I as bidding partners. But it's funny you should say that because at the lunch, one of the things I say is I say, you know, Warren, 
There are people like me who study every move you make. There's stories in the Talmud of these students of rabbis who would sneak into the bedroom to learn how the rabbi made love to his wife. And I'm kind of one of those. Yeah. And Warren doesn't skip a beat. He says, oh, well, I'd better check under my bed tonight before oh. <laughs> I go to bed. <laughs> so yeah, I was that kind of guy. But, um, but I didn't think anything of it. I thought this is a really dumb idea. Why would you pay so much money to have lunch with Warren Buffett? It was Monish Pabrai at a breakfast that I know exactly where we were sitting at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel overlooking Central Park who says, this is a really smart idea. This is an incredible opportunity to spend three or four hours with the guy. And he'd done the research. He knew that if he likes you and there's no obligation for him to like you, that he may well invite you and include you in things after that. Which, so, has, ha which has happened like for many people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so Wait, didn't Todd or Ted... Uh, when one of the Ted, Ted Wexler did it two or three times. That's and now they work for him. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and you know, I don't think that is I is that ever, what you wanted. Um, Be honest. I, <laughs> well, no matter guy. what he offered you, though, you you learned your lesson from the last time you had real job offers. You would have said yes, I'm in. <laughs> Uh, you know, um, I don't know. It's it's one hell of a spotlight to have on you, and it's True. a lot of pressure. True. And I think that he's an incredible guy, but I. Um, in the operating businesses, I wouldn't want to be in an operating business that's not performing very well. No, I portfolio so management. If he would have said, I love the way you think. You learned it all from me there, after all. I think I think <laughs> I yeah. maybe, maybe can you come be a younger version of me for a few decades? I think for a good two or three years, uh, after the lunch, I think you're absolutely right. Okay. That I would have loved that. Who but, is who is Monish to you? So, so he is, in a certain way, a bigger teacher to me than Warren is. Okay. Uh, because he's he's got this really unusual mind where he takes something where I'm like, who would do that? And he turns it on its head and says, this is actually a great idea. And I go home and I think, wow, it is actually a good idea. And when I met Monish, I was living in New York, and I had a very kind of block and tackle standard approach to developing relationships in my business. And I was kind of envious of this guy who was living the Southern California life at the time, yeah. uh, very different life, but seemed to have a very successful business. And he didn't go to client meetings. He didn't, and, and I was like, how does he do this? And I, I realized that he had a kind of a different way of approaching the people who were interested in him, which involved not meeting them until it was really worthwhile and engaging in correspondence with them through letters and thank you cards and sending them a book gift maybe once a year. And I was like, I want to do this. But it would have been- And you're both hedge fund managers at this time? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and, they're, so, and, they're, and they're like uh, emerging, what's called emerging funds? I would or say emerging managers, although he was, emerging he managers. was like, I was maybe running 50 million. He was running at least three times. I mean, I so think- So he had figured it, something out a little bit before you. Wait, yeah. yeah. And-, and um, so he sort of like in how to uh, simplify one's life. And actually, he had taken the things that he'd learned from Warren Buffett and applied them much far more effectively than I had, okay. actually. So he's been an incredible teacher to me. I That's feel great. very, very lucky. The funny thing is, is that kind of the friendship developed around the lunch. I mean, the time when he proposed being bidding partners together, and I still don't fully understand. I mean, he had so many options. Maybe he didn't him. want to go alone. He definitely didn't want to go alone, but but he could have done it with all sorts of other people. Yeah, but maybe he was like, this guy's going to talk about hiding under Warren Buffett's bed and he'll be the embarrassing <laughs> one and I'll be the suave, sophisticated one. Maybe, maybe I have you no were idea. The foil. It was the Guys, foil, yeah. Did anything interesting come out of that meeting in terms of a, a continual relationship with Warren? I mean, um, you know, I was ready to invite Warren to Zurich where I could have treated him to some really good Zurich steak. Wait, so where'd you but, go? Uh, so it was at Smith and Walensky. Oh, Smith and, and Wool. Yeah, actually, and if, if you go to- Wait, the, here? Yeah, yeah. You know, right I walk in that place, they bang a gong. 
They love, I'm telling you, they love me in the 50s. Yeah, the well, if you go into the room with a view on the kitchen, there's yeah. plaques on the walls and you'll see my name and Monish's name. Oh, that's killer. So, I don't know, maybe a year after or not long after the lunch, Debbie says, you know, when you're in, in Omaha, you should drop by and say hi. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I should just like be there tomorrow. But we, I arrived a couple of days early for, from one of the Berkshire meetings. He gave us a lovely tour of his office. He came out and said hello. We had a couple of lunches with Debbie. He introduced us to Brit, um, Tracy Britt. I was about to say Brittany. I have somebody who's talking about who Britney is, Spears. Who is that? Tracy Britt. She, she like sent a letter to him and he gave her a job for life, basically? Uh, well, she's Tracy not working. Tracy Britt Cool or something? Tracy Britt Cool, her husband, Scott Cool. She worked okay. for him as uh, an analyst, uh, and then she ran Pampered Chef for a while. Okay. And now she runs a firm called Canbrick. Okay. Um, so he kind of, and and he he brought me and Monish into his circle. And then at so, a certain point, we got invitations to this brunch that he would host on a Sunday. Uh, and we met. All sorts of people. I mean, I met the um, the treasurer of the United States at one of these things. I met John Alcan. I, I, Ajit Jain was there. I mean, that was a, an amazing thing. And you know, I still to this day, am blown away because you know. And I, I talk to William Green a lot about this, the author of Richer, Wiser, Happier. And I ask him, why would Warren do this? I'm a schmuck. You know, I cannot do anything point for Warren me. Buffett. <laughs> that was awfully specific. I'm sitting, I'm sitting, I'm sitting within reach too. Just, just saying. We're all schmucks. All right, it's fine. But why, why would he do this? And, yeah. and William has a kind of a nuanced view. He sort of says, you know, he probably realizes that there's no way you can thank him. He realizes that uh, that little bit of inclusiveness on his part makes an enormous difference to you. And he says, why not? And he does that over and over and over again. And so, yeah, it's been incredible for me. It's been utterly transformative. And you also got a, a dividend out of that in the form of media attention, wanted or not. Um, I'm, I'm a very good example of somebody who knows how to parlay that into something. Right. You may not have loved it or you may not have been seeking it, but Google yourself. <laughs> this is not to yeah. say that you're not so, an accomplished fund manager. I know you are. No, I mean, you know, but I this have, is part I of your story. Have, this is I part don't of have story. Omaha numbers, you right. know? I want to say one thing. This really pissed me off during the pandemic. It made me sad. You don't have to respond to this. I just want yeah. to say it. I watched this kid, Justin's son, who's the founder of some bullshit crypto thing. Mm. I don't know if it's real or not. I shouldn't say that. It seems like bullshit to me, but most crypto does. He wins this thing for one. Like to, or or he's bidding on it, or I forget the whole story. I'll look it up later, or I won't. But he wins the Warren Buffett lunch, and he's on Twitter being like, "I'm going to teach Warren Buffett about uh, crypto, and I'm going to I'm going to convert Warren Buffett into a crypto fan." And I was just like, "Oh, that sucks." Imagine having the the wherewithal financially to get this opportunity, and your whole shtick around it is going on social media about how you're going to teach the old man something about some bullshit technology. So that, that kind of made me sad. But I'll just- If I were Warren, I would never, I would never do this again after well, that. I, I just give you two things. So one is, you know, and I, if, if, well, I, I, the book has a lot of Monish in it. The, the genius of Monish Pabrai. So after we've won the, our bid, uh, there are people who call me up and they say, look, you know, I hear you going with your wife. Why don't you drop your wife and I'll pay for your seat? Yeah. So I communicate that to Monish. And Monish says, he, he just smiles, says, no, 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 guy, we're not doing that. No. Because, because it's no a family. No amount of money is worth that. Yeah, it's a family event. He's there with his wife and two daughters. I'm there with my wife. We're there as family. 
That guy did not get that at all. So another thing that, and I just find that Warren has figured things out where, you know, he does things and there's multiple layers of, um, there are multiple reasons for doing it. And so Monish now clones Warren and he auctions off a lunch with himself once a year, which is, which this time it went for around $43,000. And then I, you know, then I cloned Monish because it takes me a longer time to figure stuff out. So and, I cloned And Monish. we won and that's how you're here. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're very glad to be here. But um, so, and here's what's fascinating is that the people who bid uh, are usually very interesting people. And so I am convinced that Warren would have found it interesting to talk to this guy. And it introduces a kind of a very specific kind of randomness into your life in that, you know, you've got a lot at stake when you've, when you've bid even $43,000, which is nothing in comparison to what they bid for Warren. But people come, and I, 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 the lunch with me last year was, I think, maybe, I don't know, it was either 10000 somewhere between ten dollars and $20,000. The guy came, wonderful guy, um, full of questions, full of Is he an thoughts. aspiring hedge fund manager? Yeah, he's just started okay. his business. That's most of like who would be bidding on stuff like this, right? But we had a really great time talking and I yeah. learned a lot. And it was it was kind of a connection that I wouldn't have had. And I learned from Warren. So Tim Cook has or auctioned off lunch with him. But it's like one hour in the cafeteria of the of the Apple headquarters, which is no nothing terrible, but but Warren was there for like three or four hours with us. Yeah, I was going to say there's a there's a quality that that Warren has where there's like it's it's just would probably feel really genuine being it with was. him. Tim Cook, you could picture there being like a scheduler standing behind him. Yeah, like okay, time's up. Wipe your mouth. No, say thank there, you. There you was know. none of that, and so that's I I cloned that. And something that I learned as well was so I took these guys, and it's my treat. Uh, in the case of Smith and Walensky's, I think that they pay for the lunch. It's great kind of marketing yeah, for them, the power lunch with I'm Warren. Going, I'm going later. <laughs> in, Definitely. In my case, it wasn't. But we took them to this place called Scott's, which is like an incredibly expensive meal. But but it was an occasion. And yeah. we all felt great. And and we'll remember each other forever after. Even And we have been in touch since. So I'm looking forward to the next one. In fact, I'm, my next email newsletter, I'll, I'll, we'll see. And, and I'll tell you something else that's really great about these things. So... You say you take two or three hours and, and you say, well, that's kind of like my equivalent to my hourly bill out rate. So somebody's trying to get a slice of my attention and it's sort of fun to say, well, look, the last guy who got a slice of my attention paid 20,000 bucks for it. What are you willing uh, to spend? That's a good point. You know? It's a new benchmark. It's a new, that's a new, be that's a new benchmark. For I'm going to start doing that. I actually, I really consider doing it. How much here. do you think you get for lunch? One ETH. I bet you can get more than you think. You'll be blown away. So first of all, your friends will feel sorry for you. So it's not going for less than $1,000. I, I bet right here it's not going for less than $5,000. The problem is it's going, to be a, it's going to be a mutual fund wholesaler that wants you to <laughs> include some, some fund they have in our asset allocation. That's all right. It's going yeah. to be transactional for sure. Right? But they don't get the right to force you to do it. I mean, you, you get to have lunch with them. And if they abuse it in that way, then you're obviously not inviting them back for any other stuff. We should never eat, We should never pay for lunch again, Right. you and I. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta we gotta figure this out. Uh, will there be another Warren Buffett ever again? You know, I mean, statistically, well, no. But like, even somebody that we put on that, other than other than I, I once said maybe Chamath was in the running. Uh, delete your life. Delete my life. Uh, no, but statistically, probably not, just no, because of what his starting point no, was. He right? He started when he was. He's been doing this for seventy years. Yeah. But also, I mean, the markets were young. Right. I mean, so a few things that, that really kind of struck me and, and uh, you know, reasons why one should do this kind of thing if one can. So the very beginning, my wife 
uh, was born in Salisbury, North Carolina. So there is a, we send him our bios. He didn't ask for it, but I felt like I wanted to send it. So I have lived in Iran and Israel and was born in South Africa, and I feel like I'm interesting. And my wife's born in Salisbury, not uninteresting, but Salisbury. We're from so America. I'm, yeah. So right. So I'm thinking that Warren's going to like look at me and go, "Oh my God, you lived in Iran." And instead, he first meeting, he turns to Laurie and he says, "Wow, I see you were born in Salisbury. My best friend comes from Salisbury." What a move! That's so Buffett. There what are, a move! There are so many ways in which he's kind of like a genuine yeah. Midwesterner, and it's sort of like he's extremely sophisticated in his thinking. But there's also kind of a simplicity and a Midwestern simplicity to him, which is kind of really interesting. But also a shark. I mean, he, he's, he's out for a good deal. Is for it, him fair, and his is it fair to yeah. say, though, that he really likes people in a way that it comes through and you believe it and it's probably true, but like a lot of people in his position would maybe have an aversion to people just because everyone in their lives wants something from them? So I, I don't know him well enough. I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, like this, I've spent, I've been like once sitting and a few times standing. So... Uh, but what I believe, and this is really just this, just a speculation, is that he's, of course, extremely intelligent and loves being really on his own, but figured out to have the best possible life that he had to learn to engage with people. And in a certain way, some people are natural at engaging with and getting people to like them and vice versa. Right. And for him, it, it didn't come naturally, but he learned it anyway. He taught himself. But here's something that was really astounding for me. So... After that lunch, I remember a friend of mine, we were at the Value Investing Congress in California, and I, I don't know, I, I say I'm going to do something, go windsurfing or something. And the friend says, no, no, you should be here talking stocks with us. And, and I'm like, no, I'm going to go windsurfing. That's the right thing for me to do. And, uh, but for Warren, there, the, Warren would never go windsurfing. He, he really doesn't notice what color the walls are. So he's this extremely unusual personality that if you tell him, that he could spend the next three years, you know, reading through the works of Marcel Proust, and he'd still have the same returns, and he would have made the same amount of money for his investors, or he can spend the, the, the next three years reading 10Ks. He has no interest in reading Marcel Proust. Now, that might not be entirely accurate, but he's a guy who genuinely, genuinely enjoys the process of studying companies and investing to make money. Yeah, no, it's, it's not his gig. It. It's what turns him on. It, it genuinely turns yeah. him on. And I, if I look at myself, there are many things that turn me on. I love going to art museums. I love having nice things in my home. Uh, I like going on holidays to interesting places. I don't just want to drink Diet Coke. I've developed an interest in wine, and I, I like those things. And up to that point, I really thought in order to be the best version of myself, I had to become— Singular. Yeah, but to your point, will there be another Warren Buffett— this he is sort of like what these amazing abilities have come together in a guy who genuinely loves that stuff. That's his best possible life, and it was only at that point where I realized it's kind of painful to do that. I'd stop trying to be like him, as I write in the book, because that's not going to make me happy. I only have one life to live. Yeah, you know what? And he's been he's been consistent uh, for seventy years. Like the letters that he was writing to his investors in the fifties are timeless and consistent. He would say the same thing today as yeah. he did back then, which is just remarkable. And how many people could you say that about? Zero. Zero. Is it, is it fair to compare the total return of Berkshire, the return of Berkshire Hathaway versus the S&P 500 when people talk about Buffett's track record? Should they be looking at the underlying investment portfolio? Like, is that fair to look, to just look at BRK, A, A, B, whatever? I mean, the share price. Just the share S &P. price. 
Is that a fair benchmark for him? I mean, I think it is because because at the end of the day, you know, what do we have a choice to do as, as say, retail investors is we can choose to buy shares of Berkshire, we can choose to buy the S&P. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to ask oneself. And, uh, you know, I think that he's underperformed for, for, for quite 15? a period. Yeah, I, I'm I'm coming up for like six years of underperformance. <laughs> it's no fun. I'm about to do a, to well, do an investor meeting. And one of the reasons why I ask is because let's say that Buffett is bucketed, uh, or if you do some sort of regression, it's whatever it is, you know, growth at a reasonable price, or some maybe so there's some yeah. value in there. And his particular style of investing is going through a 15 year period of underperformance of the S and P. Uh, it happens to everyone. I'm just yeah. I'm just asking. Could happen to the best people, really. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, so. Uh, I think that what happens to those people who've owned Berkshire for any length of time, more than 10 years, is that you develop a different kind of relationship to it. It's a bit like owning your home. You know, and I've realized, you know, we, our children were at school in the UK. Under pressure from my wife, we ended up buying a pied-a-terre in the UK. And now, even though we only have two of the children are no longer at school there, the idea of selling that home is kind of like painful. And I really don't care what the value of the home is. I love that you said I, I own Berkshire B shares. I have never once measured it against the S&P. I don't care at all. I li- it's like the house I live in. Yeah, you know? I always own it. Yeah, and so um, in my case, I don't make that comparison. And But I think it's very likely that there'll be moments when they get to do things that turn that track record around in a very, very profound one, way. One, one more Buffett question for you, and then, and then we're going to move on. Um, what's your best guess? Uh, as to what might happen in a post Warren Buffett Charlie Munger world, like what what happens to the stock itself? What do they do differently at the company? I know they say they're not going to do anything differently, but uh, what 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 would you guess? I mean, you know, it's funny. I I was with an FT journalist who was trying to figure this out himself, and he he I think he wants to write a piece on it, and um, so you know, Warren's a genius, and it was. So somebody asked the question at one of the meetings, Ajit Jain, who runs the insurance businesses and is an incredible, the the kind of like the mirror image of a stock picker, he's an incredible at finding profitable risks for Berkshire Hathaway to take yeah. on. He takes on these extremely unusual risks. There's one where it was a, a billion dollars payout for a hole in one, you know, and how do you price that? And <laughs> literally they took that bet and they took the premium in. And if they would have lost the premium, lost that bet, they would have had to pay out a billion dollars. I don't know how much premium they took in. But um, they asked the question, what would you do if Ajit Jain was hit by a bus? And they said, well, the whole job, the whole way the insurance division is structured is around Ajit Jain's abilities. So if Ajit Jain is no longer there, we're not going to try and run it in the same way. So I think the same is true of Berkshire Hathaway as a whole. If I'm Ted Wexler, I don't want to be a guy who, you know, this is Warren Buffett's baby. He's made some very big ballsy bets. Many of them have worked out. Many of them haven't worked out. But I think that the range of decisions that they make will narrow down. So a guy like T- Ted Wexler will naturally not take big ballsy bets. He's not going to do an acquisition for an issue a third of the shares of the company. positive for the, the multiple or negative? Um, I think that the company turns into this massive cash-generating melting ice cube that slowly melts over 50 years or 75 years. So The cash flows will be extraordinary for years to come. Yeah, and, and the share price will not will, will, will um, not sort of like be in the sky, but because of the constant shrinking of shares, those shares will constantly become, uh, you know, in intrinsic value, more and more valuable. Ted and is not going to be – Ted, Todd, will not be empowered to – 
do the kinds of things like letting Apple become a quarter of the market cap of the company. I mean, I say, how much does Apple pay them a year in dividends? Like literally. I, 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 yeah, it must be. So I don't know. Like is it a billion? Said, I can't remember. But I'm, say, but I'm saying. The, uh, it can't be. A, oh, it could be. I mean, the dividends. Are giant but the shareholders, yeah. as represented by the board of directors, are not going to give anyone else, including Greg and Ajit, the, the leeway to do big things. Th- I think that Warren can do. And I don't, yeah, but I don't even think it goes that far. I think that if I put myself in Ted's shoes, I don't want to do big things. Right. Or if if I'm going to do a big thing that makes sense, I'm going to like, it's not just that I'm going to talk to the board members because let's remember that, I mean, the, the family that's so interesting is the, the family that used to own Marmon. Yeah. I mean, my best understanding is that they have a huge proportion of their net worth now in Berkshire Hathaway. So you kind of like got these families who who's only home in a certain sense is Berkshire Hathaway. She's kind of talking to them and saying, look, I, I, you know, this is kind of a big thing, but I think we want to do this. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, so, but I think that that's extraordinarily unlikely. I know if I was in, I'm not in his shoes, thankfully, but I'd want to just sort of like play it carefully in a certain way, play it safe. And that's what the families that have shares would want. And that, so and, that's on the stock picking side, on the operational side, like a, doing a deal like Precision Cast Parts, which doesn't work out very well. To, what is it, $30 billion right. swing of the bat? Uh, Greg's not going to do that. I don't think, we'll see. But yeah. I think that what I, you know, and it's amazing the lessons that one learns only if one's a shareholder. So I realize that, you know, how big a bet do I want to make in my portfolio? I think 5% and you keep making, so there'll be a size of bet that they will make uh, that probably Ted in combination with um, Greg Abel would make, but they're not going to be, I mean, right now, if Warren could do a 100 billion acquisition, I think that that made sense. You know, he would love to do that. Uh, funnily enough, I I did some. Um, I, I wrote a white paper just for fun with a, an intern over one summer, in which we studied what were the options for Berkshire Hathaway to acquire IKEA, and <laughs> IKEA would be an amazing acquisition for yeah. Berkshire Hathaway. It's not for sale at yeah. any price. It's all tied up. No way. They don't need the money. They don't want the money. What all is of IKEA things. worth? Like. Back of the back of the net. So it's very very hard. They don't have consolidated accounts, but um, the revenues I believe are about fifty billion. And and so wow. if you kind of got to buy them for one times revenues, that would be a fifty billion dollar acquisition. And so many synergies with Nebraska. Yeah, and just like well, you know what <laughs> I'm we kidding. well what we tried to do with we got to some of the board members of so it's sort of like divided in three different entities. Like one entity owns the intellectual property, another entity owns some of the distribution, even they operate together, to kind of say, look, you guys are well taken care of for the next 25 years. But if you really want your culture to sustain over, let's say, the next 50 to 75 years, then um, you're far better off being, and your culture is aligned with Berkshire's culture. So why don't you kind of talk to these guys? And by the way, it helps Berkshire as well. So we tried to come at them from that direction. And like a couple of them gave us the time of day for like, five minutes on the phone. Who else was on their list? Um, On the list of acquisitions. I mean, it was was just IKEA because it's a special and unusual business. I mean, in Europe, it's been, I live in Switzerland and it's kind of been painful to me that there have been so few acquisitions by Berkshire in Europe and it's just Berkshire has not succeeded there. Here's maybe something sort of similar. I think this is a European privately held company, Lego. Yeah, so this is really funny. Uh, I have a friend who used to name. What is that, Danish? Uh, uh, that is a Danish company. Yeah. And it's also, you're, it's funny you bring that up because it's very, very similar, owned by a foundation, extremely profitable, very, very private, extremely wealthy family behind it. And um, 
we kind of like at the edges thought about it, thought about writing a white paper, but having crashed and burned as we expected to do with IKEA, uh, we decided not to do it with Lego. But so, yeah, that would be an amazing brand, but it's not for sale, you know? So, so I want to ask you about value investing in 2023. And the question I would put to you is, what does it even mean anymore to be a value investor? It means you underperform. No, but, but, <laughs> but, I, but I still think that the most rational, the most rational possible way for somebody to approach investing is to say, I think that thing is worth a dollar and I can buy it for 70 cents. Yeah. To me, like I can't come up with a better definition of what it means to invest, but that approach systematically at least has not been like a winning strategy relative to other strategies, investing in innovation, for example, in recent yeah. years or investing in momentum or whatever the case may be. So what does it mean to be a value investor today? Uh, I mean, because even Buffett, like Apple is not a value investment. It's it's half his portfolio. It's 30 times earnings. Yeah. So like t talk to us a little bit about how you think about that question. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if, to be a value investor is to underperform is, it, look, the the world that I entered into in 1995-6 uh, was a world in which you did not have Edgar online. There was no way to access financial statements online. You had an online. edge if you could just read the materials that other people weren't even going to look yeah, at. Yeah, and you yeah. just have bits of paper in front of you that nobody else was looking at. And, and it's kind of, even without, I don't know what AI has have been developed to kind of like read all the 10Ks and Qs and other filings instantly in, in spite. Yeah, Buffett G GPT. Right. Is right. That, does that exist? No, I, but it will. Yeah, exactly. So uh, everybody has access to the information. And the other thing that's happened, I mean, I can't, don't remember exactly, but there were plenty of investment publications where the most important thing they did was show you the chart of the stock. And there were, there were mutual fund managers yeah. who like said, well, like, you know, I analyze the charts and I, and I look, I put the charts up on the wall and I see the charts that are going to make us money. Nobody seriously does that anymore. Everybody's a fundamental investor. Everybody agrees that ultimately the, this, like, the, the company's intrinsic value exerts a gravitational force. So, so, so that makes it really, really hard, really hard. And in my case, you know, I had some, I, I had some success in saying, "Oh, look, there's a branded goods company in the United States. I wonder where in the world I can find branded goods companies." And and there was, but I don't think that's finished as well. That's that was when money, money to invest outside of the U.S. and and Western Europe was only coming from there. Now you have rich Chinese, rich Singaporeans, rich Dubai, and and they all understand that stuff, and they're all doing that as well. So so I think that. Uh, the only, th perhaps, uh, the only thing that does remain is just simply time arbitrage. So, I was saying, if, if everyone knows everything, maybe the edge is just being your, your time horizon is longer than the so, person who's and, willing to yeah. sell to you, and so yeah. being willing to endure more pain with hopefully the eventual reward. Right. So, but but it's not much, and that's part of why I, you know, I I've gone to like pushing my fees down to as low as possible because I I think there's really doubts as to whether somebody doing what I'm doing. Uh, can add serious amounts of value. I mean, there's a uh, Sanborn map was one of the famous investments of Warren Buffett and his his gang. And like, they found these shares of this company and they had an, an investment portfolio of bonds and stocks that was like three times the market cap. That's oh, wow. it. There's your analysis right there. Assets. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, obviously. And, and now he's he's sending, he's putting ads in the newspapers to try and acquire these shares. And then once he's got enough shares, he's trying to convince the company that they need to liquidate the portfolio, do some kind of transaction. To the game has changed. So, so yeah, it's really, really hard. And I think that, so I, I think that if I look at myself, 
and so I don't know what value investing means anymore because everybody's a value investor. And when everybody's a value investor, the competition is so much Well, greater. what has changed is what metrics they are valuing. Yeah. And they're and, looking at IP. They're looking at, you know, uh, they're looking at intangibles and yeah. brand. Well, and also, things a, simple, that, a simple thing that has changed is just the dynamic inside the United States with the Magnificent Seven, what Google and Apple and Microsoft have continued to do is unlike anything that's existed to date in terms of company profitability, scale, efficiency, growth. Yeah. And that's where people want to be. And maybe it's just that simple. And so in the middle of uh, the COVID crisis, and you know, a bunch of companies that I own have gone down a lot, and I'm looking at these companies like, and Google's one of them, but there's also companies like Zoom and others who are like benefiting from the tailwind that the lockdowns provide. And I just said to myself, I'm going to hold my nose, take a big gulp, and buy some shares of Google because I need to understand what it's like to own this thing. It doesn't meet any of my valuation metrics, but there's something else going on here. Came pretty late to the game in it, but I, I would totally agree with you. And it's taken me a very long time to understand. But what's strange about this is that so there are these different valuation metrics like lifetime value of the customer and um, uh, looking at these subscription businesses, which basically have no expenses or no real yeah. uh, variable expenses, and then but then there are people who took that too far. So that that analysis sure. was was valid, but then there are many people who just took it to an insane place. Where I stood, sat at a, con a conference that I run called ValueX, so values in the name. And That's yours. That's your yeah. event. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Come You've and join that, us. Right? Who goes? Oh, yeah. He likes skiing. Does Meb Faber go to that? Who goes? Where to is that? it? So, so there's they, we, we've had spin-offs. So Vitaly Katzel Nelson does one in Vale. Oh and, yeah, yeah. I know Vitaly. Uh, there's a friend who does one in Kazakhstan. I do the, the original one in Zurich, and there's okay. probably there's one in Charlotte, North, North Carolina now that Jeff Hendrickson does. Oh, so cool. it's kind of like a TEDx, you know, okay. something like but that. But guy, you, you spoke about price, so value investors. You buy something for less than you think it's worth, and you wait for prices and value to converge. Yeah, but you you can wait years if other investors don't see the same value as you do because there's all these other things that are attracting yes. capital. So then, then you want to be in a business that's growing. And it's interesting. So another idea that has just taken taken hold of many investors is this guy, Chris Mayer, that you should have on this show. Uh, I think it's called 100 to 1. He's talking about finding 100 baggers. There's okay. Phelps who wrote 100 to 1 in the stock market. And so then- 1 to 100 or 100 to 1? 100 to, I, I, I wish I had it written okay. down, but but they, but they, then um, Chris Mayer wrote a kind of an update, his his journey in finding 100 bag of stocks, basically. Okay. Because if you're into something where it takes a long time for the market to recognize it, but it's becoming so much more valuable. And what's interesting is there's an analysis that was done by a group of interns about five years ago. And the businesses that did deliver 100 to 1 returns over a period of 10 or more years don't necessarily they're not necessarily in tech so they they can be in like distribution and all sorts of like um monster beverage is another one Dominus. and pool pool corp i don't know if it's a 100 bagger yeah, pool, but pool corp is one of the biggest winners of all time right they, and, dig, they dig holes like it's literally <laughs> they dig swimming pools right and and distribute all these consumables for swimming pools yes so um i think that that's an idea that i'm not sure if it's again it's kind of like flavor of the month everybody's trying to find 100 baggers yeah. and actually it's 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 a crowded trade right now cuz you know for every 100 bagger that is a 100 bagger they're going to be 20 that look like it and aren't going to make it but i'm i'm really not answering your question cuz it's a really tough question to answer i mean yeah. i've kind of come up with time arbitrage and um and that you know so it's really hard. I wish I had simple answers. I don't. What if the answer is 
that there are going to be certain market environments that are going to make you look really smart if you do this well. And you just have to almost like console yourself with the fact that there are going to be many years where no matter how good you are, the market's not going to reward you. And then that's the expectation that you set for your clients. And David Einhorn comes to mind. He had one of the best years in his career last year. It was amazing. His shorts worked. Yeah. His yeah. longs worked. Yeah. And a lot of, most people's longs did not work last year. And that's a one out of every now, maybe he could do that every three years in the 90s. Well, you just can't do that well, anymore. There's, there's every a confluence three years. of factors. There's yeah. a confluence of factors weighing against value, traditional value investors. One of them, one obvious one, is interest rates. And uh, you can't really. It's hard to. It's hard to say that growth, growth companies are not benefited, relative to value companies from ultra low interest from, rates. Yeah. And look, um, I just remember at the end of his letter that I was lucky enough to receive, David Einhorn said that he thought that now with the kind of break that happened over the last two years, value investing was going back. To going to go back from being an industry to being sort of like a sort of like a handicraft thing, and they're going to be many many smaller people are going funds. To fall out. Well, yeah. a lot of people got wiped out. A lot, but I don't know if enough did. <laughs> and there's a, there's still a lot of money out there, sure. and it's driving up all sorts of prices. And there are so many more MBAs there, and there are so many more people who've studied accounting and who know how to value businesses. And so, so I, deriving an edge, it's hard. Yeah, and uh, right. but course, I would tell you something you say, else. Of course, so, of course, it is. Right. So th th there's this fascinating set of ideas that that my team get really upset with me because I I use this word that I don't really understand called ergodicity, but I think I now have ways to describe it. I can even describe it right here, which is, it's not the fastest skier that wins the season. It's the fastest skier who doesn't have accidents. Because if you try and ski the fastest in every race, and there's a lot of pressure to try and ski the fastest, uh, then you raise your probability of, you know, sort of damaging your knee or something so high that you don't get to finish the season. And I think that part of what is value investing today is having the willingness to disappoint investors for many years because you're not willing to do the kinds of things that would do the skiing equivalent of survive. breaking your knee. Survive. Surviving is thriving. The guy at uh, First Eagle Global said, uh, I'd rather lose half my clients than half my clients' money. Right. Uh, so Matt McLennan. And he said that in yeah. 07, right before the market blew up famously. Yeah. So that that's But that's really, really hard to do as well. But it's that kind of – and so there's an element, and I'm just trying to be a little philosophical here because we're not being – I'm not being analytical, is that – there's a kind of idea that value investing is the stoicism and this idea of deferring deferring benefits today for the future. And I think that if that is a kind of a behavioral edge, but it's really, really hard to get. I think it's hard for me to get even living in Zurich. And I moved from New York to Zurich to try and get that, to, to get kind Meaning of become you're not, calmer. you're not sitting in New York at steak dinners, idea dinners. You're not hearing yeah, all the bullshit. Correct. You're not like um, being influenced by everything the wall street journal cnbc bloomberg yeah, but you have to get out of that out of that bubble you're yeah, saying yeah but even then it's hard yeah and I agree. so but but to you know you know bring bring it back to your question what is value investing today it's um it's a far less powerful idea than it was 20 or 30 years ago because in a certain way it's such a crowded trade you know you said something i have not done i asked you what are you doing differently now as a value investor than you used to or what other value investors are doing. Yeah. You said something I have not done is update my valuation models to justify paying a higher multiple for businesses, whether it's EBITDA multiples or unit economics or LTV of customers. One has to be very wary of supposedly updated 
and better ways of valuing businesses to justify high valuations. Here's my question. Why is that such a sin? We look at things like the CAPE ratio. Uh, so 10 years worth of earnings. The yeah, that's great. That's well, that's like, that's that's old school in comparison no, no, to some no, of these We things. don't look at it to invest in. Right. We look at it and we say- Valuation has been rising for CAPE, decades. This CAPE ratio itself right. for decades has been rising. And why? Because profit margins are rising. Companies are just better at being companies. So why would it be such a sin to, for example, on average, just decide as a portfolio manager, I want to own you know, the the cheap enough stocks that I'm still a value manager, but I might have to broaden my horizons because just in general, there's this upward drift in multiples. Yeah, like, do you have a you have a line in the sand where you're like, I will not pay more than I'm just times and I, I'm not forward. saying it's right well, or wrong. I'm curious. Uh, but yeah, you know, so I'll give you one that I think is somehow I find this powerful is I don't like companies that show less cash from operations generated than the, the income that they've uh, that they've shown. So I look at the cash flow statement. I want to see more cash being generated than income. If if it's the other way around, they're reporting more income than they're generating cash. That bothers me. What the hell is going on? Maybe they found a way to invest the business above the line, so to speak. But right. uh, it bothers me. So um, I think that the reason why I don't like playing around too much with those, for example, simple kind of measures of what is the business actually producing is that you you, you got to start asking yourself, am I investing in what it is today? Or am I investing in, am I making heroic assumptions? In a certain way, we're making assumptions all the time about what the business will do in the future. And we're buying something today based on what we'll do in the future. But the, the, the one that comes to mind to me is a, a wonderful friend who takes me through his model on Salesforce. And you know, I'm looking at Salesforce, and I'm just saying, you know, this is the cash they're generating today, and it looks super expensive. And he's got a model where he's kind of uh, showing the cash that they're producing today, but showing how that's going to acquire more customers. And the average customer lasts 20 years. And once you've acquired the customer, you don't have to spend the money on them anymore, so they can become super profitable. And if you kind of do that analysis, 20 years out, when they stop spending the cash to acquire customers, it's going to be super profitable. Does that resonate with you? I'm like, you know, I you know, I kind of came out of that thing saying I wish I I wish I was smart enough to own to 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 wanna to wanna trust that. Because, well, right. Because the big so, assumption is that they can continue that indefinitely. Right. right. And and okay. then if you suddenly realize actually the average customer it doesn't stay twenty years, they only stay ten years. Or actually, even though uh, they're not acquiring new customers, what look like acquisition marketing spend is actually customer retention marketing spend, and they have to keep spending it. That changes the numbers massively, and yeah. especially at low interest rates. And so, I think a lot of a lot of businesses or a lot of valuations tripped up on that kind of thing. And so, I just I I, I found myself shying away from that and hoping that I will find something that is just not like that. So, I would guess that if you look at the companies in your portfolio, there's probably not a ton of variability year to year in the earnings or the revenue. These aren't companies that are wildly gyrating based on the economy or new product or new entrance into their into their market. Yeah, yeah, is is that accurate? So, so in yeah. a way, one way to describe value investing is, is a bet on things that won't change? Yeah, I mean, look, but, but even that, there's, there's, there's variations and nothing is, nothing is a clear cut. So, you know, I, I've invested but in- But Nestle, you're not going to see Nestle's earnings randomly surprise you wildly up, up or, or down. down. That's correct. That's kind of like, you know, Nestle for me is sort of, um, so a way of looking at it is, you know, I'm a caveman. And so I can eat the food that's kind of at the back of the cave and that's safe. Or I can go out and hunt for a mammoth. But if I go out and hunt for a mammoth, 
That would be like the envy. You might not make it home. You might not make it home. So Nestle for me is the thing at the back of the cave that I know I can always eat, even though it's not that exciting or all that great. Uh, But I know it'll be around forever and ever. But there are businesses. So when I do my 5% bets, uh, I'll buy businesses where um, it's not as clear, it's nowhere near as clear as Nestle. And there's there's a business that I've bought as an exchange business in India where they're so profitable. There are many people who want to get in on it. And we keep seeing new entrants that they have to fight off. In a certain way, the way, um, you know, every now and then with MasterCard and Visa, you think that maybe PayPal or maybe Revolut or somebody's going to take away all of their business and eat their lunch. So this is like the FTX of India that you're talking about? Uh, <laughs> FTX. I'm, why am I blanking on it? FTX. No, they're not in crypto. They're not in crypto. But I spent quite a bit of time thinking about Coinbase and thinking maybe that was a really interesting way to play it. I, you know, you just bring up FTX. I mean, I just didn't like how much money that their take or their rake was really high. So really, Coinbase really high. And, dest- and destined, if you know anything about Wall Street, you know that's destined to shrink. Destined to shrink. But yeah. Um, yeah, so like, I think their rake was like five or six percent. It's pretty big. The worst tell on Coinbase was they made three times the amount of money on retail than institutional. Yeah, with like a quarter of the volume. That's or how you know it's not sustainable. But you know, I don't know if this might have hit your desks. I mean, a guy that I don't remember his name, highly respected, really smart, comes out with like a 50 or 60 page analysis of Coinbase. Okay. And th- basically the document says, uh, you know, you must be a complete idiot if you don't want to buy this because, and by the way. He wrote know, that? Yeah, he didn't write like, it. That but, sounds but, like but research I would have written. That's sort of implicit in the document. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, Guy, I, I know you don't care uh, about day-to-day markets, but I do. Guilty. I don't care. <laughs> Josh does. Look at this. The outside and the queues and the S&P is pretty disgusting. Well, I mean, <laughs> you, you might have to define outside day. So, the, the, the NASDAQ um, opened at the highs of the day, which was significantly higher than the highs of yesterday. And... Close at the lows and completely. The lows were lower than yesterday's low. Engulfed the prior prior day day trading. And on a day where NVIDIA reported blowout numbers. So we had this. Hold on. Guys got to do some trades. Let let him make make some calls on your outside day. We had this hilarious (laughs) thing that happened uh, last quarter when NVIDIA reported where they took. They took uh, this recent quarter's uh, estimates up, I think, from 6 billion to 11. Yeah. And the stock went up in the in the previous ninety days. I mean, what did the stock go up in the previous ninety days? Uh, whatever. The stocks it was. up two hundred and fifty six percent. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of that is in the last ninety days. And so, okay, so today, instead of hitting the eleven estimate, they 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 smash it up like they did thirteen and a half billion or something like this. Yeah, and they got it for sixteen for the next quarter. So just versus twelve, like hilarious numbers. And now that this is the end of the day, I know people are short term. I'm being short term myself. The stock closed. Exactly flat. It was up 10 basis points today. It was up 9% earlier in the day. And again, short term, who the hell knows? Noise, noise, noise. But but it's interesting, nevertheless, that all of all of the good news, as we learned today, uh, was was baked in. Now, I don't know what's happening tomorrow or the next day, but for today, that's where it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and where I come out is I just, well, do you know Chris Bloomstrand? Yes. He's another Buffett disciple, yeah, right? He's he's like, you know, I, I hate it when people have IQs that are multiples of mine. And and he's a guy whose IQs I feel like it's multiples of mine. He's got he he's had an amazing presentation that he did on NVIDIA, actually, and he compared it to Microsoft of the Microsoft of 2003-4. And, you know, it could be an amazing business. Microsoft under the new CEO has done extraordinarily well in their cloud businesses, and but it took 16 years. For them, and and so Nvidia. Microsoft's had a, more than a lost decade uh, in terms of its price. 
if I stop and think about it, actually, there are some businesses that I own that are 10 times <laughs> revenues, but but 10 times revenue is kind of the limit for me. Yeah, you know? not not 40. Yeah, yeah, it's way up there. It's not <laughs> as bad as uh, Snowflake. I mean, Snowflake just completely flabbergasted. I want to make sure. I want to make sure that we. I want to make sure that we get to. Um, we talked a lot about what you won't invest in. Tell us about. Uh, so, so you're in India Energy Exchange. Yeah. So that's where you can find Alpha. Both there's probably ten other people looking at that. So why do you own Peloton? Okay. <laughs> but tell, tell I was us. Like, I was like, did they do a trade that I don't know about? You know? But tell us about some of the other stuff that you are not not like talk your book like other people should invest the way you do. But yeah. uh, you mentioned Ferrari. Is yeah. that an active holding of yours? Yeah. yeah I think that's, that's a fascinating a story. story. So the ticker is race. Yeah. How many do they make a year? It's like 14,000 right now. And when I bought it, they were like, at, I mean, it was like 12,000. 12,000. But how, how many cars are they? They're only selling that many 12,000 units a year. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but you prefer the stock to the cars because there are people <laughs> that will invest in the cars themselves too. Yeah, I you know I mean wine, cars, art. Those there's yeah. if anybody pretends that those are investments, they're not. But okay, it's a good excuse if you need an excuse to buy it. Call it investment, but Collect- I, collectibles. Uh, you know, I've one of the, so I used to own shares of McDonald's, and I used to have an office on Fifty Third and Fifth in the Six 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 building, and I'd go around the corner and eat regularly at McDonald's because I needed to like check the merchandise and see. Yeah, that's why I, was, I go there. I'm I was getting you. fatter and fatter, you know, and at some point. There, there was some element where I was saying, you know, I want to sell this because I just don't want to eat at McDonald's all the time. <laughs> no more channel yeah, checks. Because I was Shake Shack, literally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Actually. But, okay. But now I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what is it that makes people want to buy a Ferrari and pay so much money, uh, so much more than they have to pay for four wheels. And I can the- tell you that, but not on the podcast. <laughs> Right. Go on. So, so yeah, maybe I could tell you something not on the podcast okay. either. But okay. but here's what I can say is that, and I love this analogy, and I want to do something with this somewhere. Um, I used to get into fights with my wife who wanted to wear high heels to events and weddings here in New York City. And then to take to go three blocks, we had to get into a cab because she definitely wasn't walking those three blocks in high heels. Right. A Ferrari does for a man. Uh, what high heels do for a woman. They make the person feel fabulous. And anytime a guy gets upset about his at his woman for wanting to wear high heels, he should just remember that it's a way less expensive to buy high heels than it is to buy the damn Ferrari. Yeah. But it's the same thing. I wonder what percentage of Ferrari purchasers on an annual basis are men. I bet oh, you it's like 90 plus. And how many of them yeah. are bald? Yeah, and how many <laughs> of them are short? Yeah, and so I keep joking with my office staff. I keep saying, you know, I think strictly for investment research purposes, I think I need to maybe you go might need buy a Ferrari. one. And the hilarious thing is, is that I can talk about it like that. You're genius. You really are genius. Okay. <laughs> but but I still, I mean, it, you know, it impacts, even if I talk about it like that, the fact of the matter is, if I went and ended up for investment researchers purposes only buying a Ferrari, it would make me feel fabulous. You know? Absolutely. So. <laughs> uh, what, what do you? What, what's the bull case? Like in in one or two sentences, what's the bull case on Ferrari? And what's your price target? Three hundred dollars stock. Yeah. So I'm I don't kidding. have it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it is very expensive uh, stock to own, and but but the the bull case is not dissimilar to let's say Nestle or this idea of real estate, which is that. It is kind of an asset that is impossible to recreate. So what goes into a luxury brand, I, you know, we could together design a car, and they do. There's a car called Koenigsegg, which is outperforms in all sorts of ways a Ferrari. Just doesn't have the tradition. It doesn't have the heritage and the pedigree. And the people who want it want to feel like they're buying the real thing, and somehow Ferrari is the real thing. So we can ask ourselves, 
how many Ferraris could be sold in the world? And could we imagine 60,000 being sold in the world? Would that saturate the demand? No they'll, way. They'll but they couldn't they destroy the brand by, by doing that? Yeah, they could. And so it's a more delicate brand to own because it has to be managed well. And I have this question about LVMH, which is something that we could spend a lot of time talking about as well. That is the most valuable company in Europe. And I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by that company. It's, yeah. It's luxury and, items. Yeah, and the guy the Bernard Arnault is a freaking genius, and but it's way more than that. I mean, there's a building in Paris called La Samaritaine. I which, was there. Yeah, the so giant you, statue outside that, the building. That is LVMH land. It's incredible. You know, good luck having a product that is not an LVMH product and yeah. trying to sell it there. They kind of own like all the high ground in Paris, all the places, and then what they've done with Tiffany's is unbelievable. I mean, and you know, as a as a Berkshire shareholder, I kind of say, well, it wouldn't be nice if. Um, uh, if um, our uh, jewelry store, Borsheim's, would have had the same thing. I mean, maybe they could have done it with Borsheim's. So, Wasn't uh, Tiffany a piece of shit stock? It was. They say yeah. they doubled the revenue there, uh, since they bought it, thereby making the price they paid about half. After they, they closed the he flagship store for like two years to while they redid it. it and they Fifth spent Avenue. a fortune it's to sick. redo it. Have you been over there? I haven't actually. I Holy should go. Holy shit, you should go right now. Uh, yeah, maybe I will actually. But the the incredible thing there is that uh, and I don't understand where it goes because the LVMH um, sort of uh, luggage, the the, uh, the sort of logo is everywhere. And, you know, vast numbers of people from Asia want to buy that. And you sort of say, is it saturated? And what happens when it does get saturated? And when do you know if it's gotten saturated? And I hope that those guys, I don't own the shares but I hope those guys are thinking about it. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Ferrari has to make sure that it doesn't blow that. And it does bother me that, you know, so I was not interested in Formula One. But now I kind of like the brand is developed through Formula One. They have this special relationship. But they just Ferrari, keep losing. Ferrari, McLaren. Uh, Ferrari keeps yeah. losing. Red Bull. Yeah. Red Bull has won for the last eight years. I don't fully understand how or why. Wait, Red I, Bull's a car company now? So Red Bull. They have a racing, they, they they have a racing team. They have a racing team. Red Bull, by the way, is a private business, but you know, I, I think I, if I could just own Red Bull, yeah. what an amazing company or what an amazing marketing machine. So, so they market their Red Bull drink uh, in part through getting guys to parachute from the highest height, like the practically satellite height, and they, they sponsor a car. Guy, before we get out of here, I want to make sure that I ask you, you've been doing this a long time. What have you learned about communicating with investors through difficult periods of performance? Uh, yeah, th that it's hard. <laughs> you learned you learned that. Um, so what? Why I started off doing quarterly letters? Maybe sorry, just one, one, one just take this to the stage on this. I apologize for cutting you off. One of the things that Buffett's so magnificent yeah. at is yeah. communication with his investors. Once a year, once a year in a letter. But and can I, I'm sorry. This is like you, a by the way, you can cut me off anytime you <laughs> this like. This is a tangent. It's he doesn't communicate with his investors. Not the way that he used to. No, no, no. I'm I'm gonna go somewhere even different than that. The money that he's investing is insurance premiums. It's not mutual fund uh, deposits. In other words, he's in, he's investing money that people would be paying anyway, whether he's doing well or poorly, because it's insurance float. He has shareholders of Berkshire. But that's a different conversation. There is there is a book that was published. I can't remember who was the author that put this together. Letter Buffett's, Buffett's letters from his hedge fund in the fifties. Yeah, Larry did you Cunningham. Read that book? Yeah. Who, who did that? Larry Cunningham. Larry maybe? Cunningham. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Just incredible. Just an incredible communicator. Yeah. Up down. But you agree. Whatever. But you agree with that diff that delineation because yeah. yeah if I mean, you have an insurance company, 
You could cut you could cut your investments in half yeah, and I'm people not, are still making I'm their not payments. Talking about Buffett circa 2023. All right, fair. So yeah. how do you do it? Well, first of all, Buffett's a genius and I'm not. I mean, that's a cute way of not answering the question, but it really, really is true. I stopped communicating on a monthly basis and even stopped communicating on a quarterly basis because it just it, it just you get onto a treadmill. And then now, if you don't send out your quarterly letter or your monthly letter, or some people do it weekly, some people do it daily, now the investors are worried what happened to right. you. And you get tired. And, and what I saw was that the quality of my writing went down. And I and you, you, we've all read them. They're kind of like warmed up market commentaries. And the guy is just, or woman, is just tired of writing. And they can't and repeat, come up with And repeating stuff. things that Every other people have said. Every not and, that much interesting to say. Yeah, yeah so, so I, I limit it to once a year. And it's really tough. I mean, I can't say, I mean, again, we've, we've mentioned him before. Everybody should read Chris, Chris Broomstown's letters. I mean, they're just incredible. And they're Are they like, public? Yeah, you just go to his website and download them. And But, you know, it takes some time to read them. Every every one of his annual letters is like 300 pages, maybe yeah, not but then, 100 but, pages. But then you're going to all spend a lot of time just on the perform? I, I mean, kid, I kid, I kid. You know, he like, his analysis of Berkshire, I mean, he dives into the weeds of the numbers in a way that nobody else I know, and he, he just loves doing that. So I mean, Chris publishes some stuff on Twitter, and he's obviously incredibly, incredibly intelligent. Yeah, yeah, in a way that's how many shocking. How many investors are you writing to once a year? So it's it's that, 150, like 150. Is, is sort of like the outside investors. Are they all sophisticated or half sophisticated? Like, do you have to think about the, the audience? Um. So, no, they're, they're like, I mean, they've gone up a learning curve. I mean, I and my dad went up a learning curve, uh, but some of them are, are relatively new to the fund. And so, and look, I, so I, the, the thing is, I, I got myself into a good groove because starting with that first chapter of my book, The Belly of the Beast, I kind of like did this, you know, I, I, so William Green sits down with me and my dining room table is a wooden table like this. And we start looking at the first chapter and he hasn't read the book yet. He starts reading the book. He's like, dude. I, you know, because he's invested with me as well. He's like, I invest with you and you did this. You know, I can't yeah. believe it. Oh, wow. But there's this amazing dynamic that if you, you know, if you kind of try and keep your, you, you blurt out from time to time your biggest mistakes and you can keep your ego below kind of like that outer boundary, I can continue to write in a humble way and be honest about what's happened. And, you know, a lot of people be like, holy moly, I don't want to go anywhere near this guy. But there are just <laughs> some people who will say, you know, I don't like the fact that he underperformed slash lost me money, whatever it is. But I know that he's being honest and I know that he's not trying to cheat me. So that makes me sleep well at night. So you don't have to be Warren Buffett and still live an extraordinary life and do extraordinarily well. You don't need to have an Omaha number of 20% plus per year annualized or 15% annualized per year. And, and at the end of the day, uh, I think that, well, actually, I have outperformed over the whole life of the fund. And uh, I'm trying to add value in these other ways. And I think that that could... That's so nice. No, that was awesome. But, but, I, but that, that's really what I'm trying to do in the letter That thing well. that you said, first of all... But, but just to guys tell you, here, ladies and it's gentlemen. painful to do. I, I just really want to say that one thing that you said, though, is so important. I might not be the best performing whatever over any time frame, but if you connect with the way I think... And I lay it out for you. This is this is my opinion of how the fund has done this year, how the markets have fared, like the insights that I want to share with you. If the person reading that connects with, with you and says, all right, I don't know how this portfolio did relative to every other manager I could have given money to or some hedge fund benchmark or whatever. All I know is I, I uh, agree with a lot of what this guy thinks yeah. and I trust him. 
and I know he means me well, that's my benchmark, and I'm yeah. happy. And I'm that that is what I think wh- what this business should be. Right. Because if it's just about three year track records, all yeah. your what well, all you're ever going to do is chase the person who's going to who's going to come off a hot streak right. and disappoint you. Right. How many times you want to do that? Ten times. You know, there's this amazing moment that I remember. It was so I had a one of my partnership meetings or a pub, an investor gathering at the Harvard Club, and I keep kind of like, here we are next to the New York Public Library, and it's like two or three blocks away. It's so funny how much of my life has unfolded in New York City, and so I somebody asked the question, so could you tell me what your cell discipline is? And I take a big, I take a big gulp because I'm going to be honest with the guy. I say, look. I, you know, I, meaning how long can you be wrong for? Or no, uh, when do you sell a stock? When, well, how, oh, okay. And what okay. you know, the standard answer is sort of like, well, when it bring, comes to intrinsic value, or when I, my thesis has changed, or my I thesis, yeah, yeah. And I look at the guy, and I kind of take a great big gulp, and I say, you know, it's really hard. I actually don't know, and I feel like, and 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 you know, here's what I try to do, and I think I've gotten it so wrong many times in retrospect, and there was a kind of a. You know, it's this feeling of once they hear me say this, they're all going to take their money and go somewhere else. And this kind of utter surprise that that they that you they didn't have a great it. answer for that plan. That but to be honest, there is no perfect yeah. answer. Right there, there isn't. And but so many people feel under pressure at the to, top. That's what I sell. My answer exactly. is sixty-nine times earnings. There we go. In fact, <laughs> I'm out. That's so, why. You know, that's guy, I'm out. Credit to you. This is the first, we've done the show a hundred. How many? What episode is this? It's the first time. I, <laughs> it's uh, infinitesimal. At this this, point. this might what be one hundred seven. This might be the first show that we've done where not a single chart went on that screen. Yeah. What do we need charts for? <laughs> look at the look at the intellect we're sitting. Well, across oh, that's from. very we're kind of charts, I, guys, but not today. I tell you something else that I mean I don't know if you get invited to do presentations, but it, it was a huge freedom for me, and it's kind of somewhere in the same way, is that um, I realized that I wasn't going to ever put up charts ever again. Yeah. <laughs> and actually what I was going to do is I was going to be the presentation. Yeah. And there's something that happened. So the other thing I learned was, you know, don't bone up on facts or trying to memorize stuff. If there's anything you're going to do before live presentations, get some good sleep. And, and then just go out there and be yourself. And when you, the first time I did it, it's a fun story for me at least. So I had a presentation prepared. Are they like, where's your slides? Yeah. And okay. so so the slides are there. And I and, and I'm gonna take the risk. And I and I get up and I I tell the group, I don't remember where it was. I say, you know, I got some slides here. Yeah. And there's a presentation. I'm gonna send these slides to you, but there's something that I really want to talk about that's not on the slides. Yeah. You know, and sort of like you sort of feel a whole room. Oh, the audience shift probably forward. excited about that. They're like, holy moly, what's he gonna say? Oh, I'm gonna steal that. I like that. And and yeah, and then the next time I just didn't bring the slides. And there's this feeling that you can actually go in multiple different directions depending on the mood in the room, which is kind of like what you guys are doing here. I mean, How would you describe a, the mood in this room? Oh, this is I've never done this before, actually. This is kind of really cool because it's yeah. it's 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 sort of like exciting and alive, but deeply genuine at the same time. So and I think that so I like so I, I agree with that. Like uh we could have taken this anywhere. We could have dwelled on one topic for 45 minutes. We could have asked you about 100 different things. But there's a logic to a conversation like this, and you just surrender to the logic. Like, what should be the next thing that we go to? Right. Michael and I are highly skilled interviewers. Like, most people would not be able to find that logic and follow it. Right. So I I just want to give us a shout. No. 
Listen, you are most, highly skilled. Most, a lot, there's a lot of guests who are really smart on one topic, and we want to make sure we give the audience just that perspective on that topic yeah. and not ask them things that they have to, like, struggle to answer. You're a little bit different. You have thought a lot about a lot of aspects of this industry, and we're very lucky to be able to pick your brain on all these different Depth things. Depth and so. breadth. Thank That's you. That's very kind. Yeah. I mean, it goes both sure. ways. I, you know, t talk to my wife. She really knows that I'm a schmuck, you know? So. Well, she's, <laughs> on, she's on next week. It's, uh, it, wor it works <laughs> I, out. I just love, I've said this many times, but I love this thing. So, so Golden Mayor apparently actually says, the movie's coming out, I think, tomorrow. It's premiering, the Golden Movie. But so she says to her ministers, don't be so humble. You're not that great. You know, oh, that's, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Love it. So we always finish the show with favorites and we ask people about whatever they're reading or watching or listening to. And you gave us a bunch of cool stuff. So let's, uh, let's make sure we get to these. The first thing is chess.com. Yeah. Uh, okay. Excuse me. So Michael beats up <laughs> chess players, but no, I've I, never beat up anyone. Stop. What is chess.com? You know, what a gold so, mine of a URL to own, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's an app on my iPhone, okay. and um, I kind of like stopped playing chess. And I found I used to, I've had to delete it on my office computer because chess is something you just get into and you just like it's a rabbit hole for me that I just like go into. I'm not that good. I don't have a particularly high rating, as those people who've come and played me have realized. But um, it's just really fun. Oh, you because, like get so you can't stop playing. Yeah, and so okay. you can play uh, you can play different time controls on this chess.com website or, or or app. You can go down to one minute chess, which is called bullet chess, which is like the most intense adrenaline thing that you've ever seen. Okay. But I play seven days a move. So I make a move and I don't have to even look at it for another six days if I don't want to. And it's just, I don't know. You're playing like, against the machine? Uh, no, no, always other players. It's so much fun. Okay. Uh, I was going to say, are, NVIDIA doesn't care if you take seven days. No, you're gonna uh, lose. people who I may have met and may not have met, and there may be oh, chats going along the side, and somehow I've just been really enjoying it. You and, talk shit? You know, it, not, not much conversation <laughs> taking place. I've probably played you on there before. But, you uh, know, there's people who— Are you good? No, I'm not good, but I enjoy it. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm on chess.com. Yeah, we yeah. should play. Yeah. That's great. Do you yeah. play seven days? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah cool. I also do the blitz stuff, but it stresses me out. Yeah, exactly. Don't do it late at night. Like, if I do that, I can't sleep for right. like two hours. Yeah. But I, it's just a great app. I okay. love it. And all, but, all of my female groupies are now like turning <laughs> off the turning off the the podcast. Let's let's <laughs> let's bring it back. Uh, you gave us a couple of books. Nobody's fool. Yeah. Uh, how do how do I pronounce the author's name? Chabris? So Chabri and Simon. Chabri and Simon. Yeah. Tell us what this is. So uh, we've all seen the video where you're asked, now I'm going to kind of do a plot spoiler, so sorry That's if you okay. haven't seen this, but you're asked to count the number of times these basket players pass the ball. And now do I do the plot spoiler? So... I, maybe I don't do the spot. Wait, wait. Who's nonfiction? What are we talking Who's about here? Passing so this the ball? is because this is Shabri and Simon. It's a very famous experiment. Okay. So the bottom line is I'm going to spoil the plot. Sorry, everyone who hasn't seen this. Um, so people count the balls and they're asked how many times did the players pass the ball within each other? With basketball each other. players. Yeah. Okay. Now they get asked the question: Did you see anything unusual? And 99% of people say, No, I didn't see anything. And during that video- It's like a gorilla like, running across the screen yeah. or something. He stops in the middle of the screen and beats his chest. It's like insane. So inattentional blindness or attentional blindness, you're looking for one thing and the thing appears in front of your eyes and it's just it's just not registered in your mind. So these guys, uh, uh, Chabris and Simon, have become experts in identifying the ways in which 
our brain puts together a reality that is that that and will ignore facts that are right out there. And of course, this is utterly, this is extremely relevant for investors. And they've yeah. kind of like, they didn't write a book for ten years. And their researchers, they're they're you know, Chabri was in the um, computer science department at Harvard University, but then he moved on. He wrote a PhD thesis on chess, but we'll leave that aside. Okay. And uh, he went into psychology, and so he's kind of like takes us through in the book circumstances in which people have been fooled in one way or another, how you get fooled, and how you can prevent yourself from being fooled. Oh, I love that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. it's pretty— Is that a very, new book? Yeah, it's just out. Okay. Just out. Very, very cool So that's book. called Nobody's Fool. Yeah. Okay, what's Authenticity by Alice Sherwood? So Alice Sherwood is a British woman whom— uh, uh, so she is a lecturer and a researcher at King's College in London. And— um, she, so like the kind of like starting point of the book or the reason why she wrote this book is that she worked with somebody who remains nameless in the book, but was a total social fraud. So he had two women who both thought they were going to marry him. Very, very smart guy. And, uh, he kept them going for the longest time until he suddenly disappeared. And so she kind of like, it was, it was a kind of a damaging and traumatic experience for her, not to mention the two friends who were kind of jilted and didn't realize this guy was doing this. And she kind of like takes the reader through many examples of the ways in which uh, we are deceived constantly and people take advantage of want, us. When we want to be deceived especially, yeah. right? And and so she, she kind of like has become fascinated by this and the book is kind of catharsis for her because she's trying to work through the issues. I mean, she didn't know how to trust people after that because this guy was so convincing. And so she kind of, again, takes the reader through thinking about what is authentic, what is not, what is real, what is not. Right. When are you being deceived? And I think both books, while ostensibly having nothing to do with investing, have actually have everything to do with investing. That's fantastic. Uh, those are two great recommendations. And uh, so one is Nobody's Fool, the other is Authenticity by Alice Sherwood. I feel compelled, you know, he's, he's a friend and he's written about me in the book, but uh, Richer, Wiser, Happier is a kind of a great sequel to my book. It's written by William Green, also from the UK, was a t student the same time as me. He edits my letters, but he kind of takes the questions that I ask in my book about what am I supposed to be doing? How do I live a more intelligent life? And instead of writing what my answer is, he goes and interviews some of the world's smartest investing minds like... Uh, Ray Dalio and this guy, Arnold Foldenberg and Charlie Munger. And he says, what are their answers to how to live a better life? And I think it's a wonderful book. And um, I am really grateful to you for giving me the time to plug of it. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> That's William Green's podcast is called what? So he's joined up with Stig Broderson and Preston Pish, and he's on the Investors Podcast. So he does have a podcast out there yeah. as well. And he he works insanely hard to prepare the interviews. I mean, I have a podcast where wait, I what don't- are you, Wait, what are you trying to say? <laughs> you guys work hard as well. Okay. You preserve, you, yeah, that's right. Okay. But, but like, he's like obsessive in a way that's kind of insane. Okay. okay. You know. Well, we're de we're definitely not that. We're definitely not that. Uh, Michael, you saw Dave Chappelle last night at so MSG. We spent a lot of time talking about New York City. Uh, and guy, you spoke about the struggles, and sometimes you you get what you pay for. In the case of a Ferrari, and in the case of New York City. So last night I saw Dave Chappelle, and I was a little bit weary going into see a comedy show with 15,000 other people, right? Comedy is an intimate thing. Yeah. Um, but it was an incredible experience. So today is Dave's uh, 50th birthday. So he had, he had some, brought some friends out on stage. Jeff Ross emceed. John Stewart and Chris Rock each did 15 minutes. There's a few other comedians that aren't as big in names. And then Dave did uh, an hour 15, and 
absolutely destroyed. It was like watching a Netflix special live. And after the show, I went home because I'm, you know, old and tired. Nas, The Roots, and Ludacris each performed. Which is, I mean, if you buy and a so, Dave, so, if you buy a Dave Chappelle ticket and you get all of that other stuff on top of it, so that's, that's like as good of a value as you could get. So there's a lot of great cities in the world, but yeah. that's that's an example of what you get living in New York City. Yeah, and I, I'm great. I'm with you, man. Although I didn't recognize many of the names there. The one that I do recognize is John Stewart, who's my hero. Okay. There's, a, there's a video that I've watched like three or four times of him interviewing somebody. Uh, getting, I, I love the way he's gone political. And I, you know, I get his political standpoint and it's great. You know? uh, I don't have, I think I don't have a favorite. I was going to, because I wanted to talk about Aaron Rodgers. But then I feel like, did we talk about Hard Knocks already in the last couple well, of weeks? The great I watched thing, the Hard third Knocks episode last night. You, you fall in love with every team that's on there and you root for them. So this is a, this, I don't know, do you know, care about American football at all? You know? Not much. Okay, good. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to keep this really short then. <laughs> no, uh, that's fine. Teach me. <laughs> this, so there's a guy, Aaron Rodgers, who's 38 or 39 years old. He's one of the oldest players still playing. Yeah. He's 20 years and he's won a Super Bowl and he's been at the top level of the game. And there's always been this talk about how he's a weirdo or he's aloof. That's the word they always use. Like Aaron Rodgers. He does aloof. some weird shit in his personal life. He does weird shit or he disappears for a while. Ayahuasca or, or whatever. He says things that are designed to like create mystery around him. But then you watch the show and it's the polar opposite of his reputation. The show is a documentary film crew for HBO and they do this every year. They pick one team to follow through training camp yeah. as they get ready for a season. And it's usually a team that's on a crossroads. This year it's the Jets. The Jets uh, got Aaron Rodgers to come after yeah. he spent his whole career in uh, in the middle of nowhere. And multiple MVPs, Super Bowl winner. Yeah. yeah. Great player. Yeah. So he comes to Green Bay, storied career. Anyway, the point I wanted to make is he is nothing like what people think of him. They show this guy interacting with like 20-year-olds. Yeah. And that's the whole team is kids that could be his son. Yeah. Like biologically. Yeah. And he's surrounded by all these kids. There's nothing aloof about him. Yeah. The team loves him. He's like the best guy. You see him involved in all these conversations with people. He's not like shut away in a trailer somewhere. Yeah. So I just like that it kind of like shattered that uh, myth about him. I totally agree. Yeah. And and had the same thoughts. I will only just add the caveat that you're seeing the best version of him. You can no no no. So I fine. Maybe HBO is editing it yeah. to make him look like America's but sweetheart. I agree. It comes off great. You can't fake it for that long. Well, how many say. hours of training do you think they do with the PR teams for the NFL franchises they work? Probably with? a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Right. So if he's smoking crack behind the building, I wouldn't know because they're not going to put up put that on the air. Uh, my caveat is I hope he loses by 50 points this weekend when he plays the Giants uh, preseason. And then when they really play in October, I hope he gets I hope he gets demolished. Uh, but other than that, I like the guy. Okay, that's it for this week's episode of The Compound and Friends. Very special thank you to Guy Spear at the Aquamarine Fund. Uh, was this a lot of fun for you? We had the best time. I, I had a great time. It was intense, man. Of course. But it was, I told a, you it was enormously fun. We've been trying to do this show with you. I told you. We've been trying to have you for a year now. So I'm so glad we could get it together. Yeah. All right. And shout Thank to- Thank uh, having me. Shout to Chantal who helped yeah. us do that. Um, Nicole, John, Duncan, great job this week. Of course, Sean, we know you're out there. Great job with all the charts we didn't post. Uh, we appreciate that too. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Leave us a rating and review. And uh, we will see you next week. All right. Watch this. All right. All right. So that, was wow. the warm, that was the warm up. And, uh, <laughs>
I just wanted to give you a little bit of an idea of how the show is. That's intense, man. Now, did that go out live? No. No. That was live. Does it say live?